You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. And welcome to the Audio Imaginarium. Come on in, weary traveler. Hang your cloak on a peg, grab a stool, and come gather around the fire. There are stories to be told, and you are among friends. Former U.S. Secret Service agent Gary Byrne is standing by. He's got a brand new book out titled Secrets of the Secret Service, the history and uncertain future of the U.S. Secret Service. We are live on YouTube tonight. You can go to my YouTube channel, Strange Planet. Please be sure to hit the red sub button while you're there. Faz Kazi is behind the big audio board tonight. Ryan is producing the live stream from his underground lair. Uh, my story producer, Albert Venzel, is en route to Gobekli Tepe on special assignment. Just kidding. Uh, hey, congratulations to Stuart Fines of Galway, Ireland. Stuart is one of our Patreon supporters, and he's this month's winner of some Strange Planet merch. And I don't know if I'm holding that up. I hope you can see that. I've dropped a, a CD of my Strange Planet radio feature in the uh, in the post for Stuart, and that should be arriving in a couple of weeks. If you'd like to become an official supporter, go to patreon.com forward slash strange planet and choose the donor tier that's right for you. This past Friday, we had our first exclusive hangout on air for our um, our star chamber tier, and it was great meeting uh, Kirk uh, down in Scottsdale, Arizona, one of our uh, our newest tier one donors. It was on this date, uh, January 27th, 1967, the tragedy struck. All three astronauts aboard the Apollo 1 capsule, Gus Grissom, Roger Chafee, and Ed White, uh, died in a horrific fire during a pre-launch test. That was 52 years ago, this very day. On the day that he was shot and killed by John Wilkes Booth, Abraham Lincoln approved the formation of the United States Secret Service, a government agency tasked with protecting the integrity of the nation's currency. In 1901, after the assassination of President William McKinley, Congress extended their duties to involve the protection of the president. And as the name implies, the organization is extremely guarded when it comes to discussing details of their methods. But we're not completely in the dark, in part thanks to my guest, Gary Byrne. 
served in federal law enforcement for nearly 30 years in the U.S. Air Force Security Police, the Uniformed Division of the Secret Service, and most recently as a federal air marshal while serving as a Secret Service officer, Gary protected President Bill Clinton and the first family in the White House. His first book, Crisis of Character, was number one on the New York Times bestseller list. His latest is Secrets of the Secret Service, the History and Uncertain Future of the U.S. Secret Service. Gary Byrne, welcome aboard. Good to have you back on the program. How are you? I'm fine. Thank you so much for having me back. Let me begin with a very simple question. How does one become a member of the U.S. Secret Service? Because, for example, I just completed a very simple criminal background check just to get a security pass that will uh, uh, let me into a radio station here in Toronto where I host uh, Coast to Coast several times a month. I can't imagine the criminal background check you'd have to undergo. I mean, do they go back in time and interview your kindergarten teacher? I mean, walk us through that a little bit if you could. They do, actually. Yeah, they – Actually, the Secret Service has some special rules that they get, believe it or not, uh, or, or I should say, go figure. Um, let's say, for instance, if they were, uh, like when I applied to, to be in the Secret Service Uniform Division, if I had had a criminal record, they have the ability to open, um, uh, excuse me, a criminal record as a juvenile. They have the uh, authorization to go into any juvenile criminal record to, to see what you know somebody may have done. Um, the background check t- for me took two and a half years because I had been stationed overseas in the Air Force. Um, the average background check at that time was probably 18 months. It took two and a half years for me. They go into everything. They look into your finances. You have to pass a polygraph test. They ask you about uh, what they would consider any sexual deviant behavior. They ask you about your, if you know, basically they want to know if you have your, a normal relationship with farm animals or, you know, it's... Um, Mm-hmm. They get pretty deep into it. Um, uh, but, it, you know, it took a long time, but um, you know, I finally got through it. So. And, and now I would imagine for anyone contemplating a career in the Secret Service, uh, if you've been active on social media, they're going to go back and check that. I mean, that could come. that's going to come back and haunt you, right? Yeah, absolutely. It's, it, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because that is completely different from when I joined. Like, I mean... You know, it's just amazing. When I when I started in 1991, it's just amazing how communications have changed between now and you. I mean, it w- I wouldn't be any more surprised to find out that, you know, we were walking to the moon almost. You know what I mean? Like, the, just the way you can communicate now. Um, and everything you've done, just like, you know, if in high school, you know, when they were doing my background check in, in the early 90s, if they had come across somebody I went to school with in high school and they said, well, you know, Gary was there one night when he stole a car. Well, now, you know, people do everything they do, they put it on social media, you know, and, and you know, people are famous. We've, you know, we've, some of us have probably done ourselves well. You say, you say things on social media that you don't particularly mean or you wouldn't actually do, but then they're there forever. Exactly. Yeah, people, young people need to understand that, not just for a job right. in the Secret Service. Uh, right. Eventually, it's probably right. going to come back and haunt you. Now, you were right. assigned to protect the Clinton uh, White House. Um, yeah. I didn't, now, I didn't realize uh, that there are, there are thousands of Secret Service agents, I guess, at any one time, not just the ones that are running alongside the presidential limo. Um, right. we, now, were you considered to be part of the Presidential Protection Division? 
Well, not not initially. I was in the uniform division. Now they now they are. The uniform division is actually considered part of presidential protection. But when I was there, we were just the uniform division. Um, you know, the uniform division of the Secret Service does the metal detectors. They do all the fixed posts at the White House. They do the the perimeter post outside. They do the emergency response teams. They have a crime scene uh, investigation team in, in Washington. They also uh, do the counter sniper, the, the bomb sniffing dogs. Uh, and we were just considered the uniform division. Now, over the years since I, I uh, left, they have pulled the uniform division in a little bit more closer to presidential protection just for communication reasons, for management reasons. Um, but uh, And I talk about it in the book, in my second book, Secrets of the Secret Service. Some of the things they've done are good, and some of the things they do in their management system is, you know, it's a very old management system, and it's kind of hard to go Yeah, the, uh, the Uniform Division is now considered part of presidential protection. And and while you were protecting the Clinton White House, tell me about a typical day if there was such a thing. Yeah, so for me, let's say if it was a day shift, I would probably leave my house at 4 o'clock in the morning. I'd get to the White House. It'd take about an hour. I'd, I'd usually work out first. Um, and most of us, uh, a lot of us did do that. We, we One day you lift weights, the next day you do we are running and and then I'd, I'd go to roll call about uh, six thirty, and um, and when my post, I had when I was my post was outside the Oval Office, so I would head over there. I had a partner. We, we rotated an hour on or an hour off, uh, standing outside the Oval Office. Um, sometimes he would take it first, or I would take it after I worked out. And then uh, you basically the first thing you did when you went in there is you walked through the whole suite of the offices that the president uses, which is the Oval Office, his secretary's office, the cabinet room, um, his study, uh, the dining room, his little bathroom. And you walk through there and you make sure that nothing is out of place. There's nothing, there's no, nothing's leaking. There's no fires. You know, everything is normal. Um, and then you basically just wait for the, uh, you have a copy of the president's schedule and you just wait for him to come over and, you know, you do your job. You're, you're basically on standby. Uh, if there's an attack, and and um, and you make sure that everybody in the hallway is supposed to be there, that you recognize everybody, and you help the agents identify everybody too, because the agents they come and go as the president moves, but the uniform division guys are always there, 24/7 at those posts. So um, you work with, you know, you you work uh, uh, together. Um, when we have our issues, they, you know, the Secret Service agents and the uniform division guys always had issues from time to time, but we always worked together and uh, got the job done. So. Um, but that would be a typical day. Like you get there, um, you know, you, you get a lunch break, uh, and then um, depending on what the president did or how busy the day was, you just kind of went along with it. Some days it was smooth, and some days it was crazy hectic. You know. Lately, I've been uh, watching an old series on Netflix, Designated Survivor. Uh, yeah. I mean, how accurate a, a portrayal uh, of the Secret Service is that? I don't know if you've seen it, but there's a character there, Mike, uh, African American yeah. gentleman. Uh, who is uh, sort of the who's sort of portrayed as the main Secret Service agent uh, protecting the president and and his family? How accurate is that? Well, they're taking a lot of uh, of, of license with it a little bit. You know, the the Secret Service like there's there's at any one time there's at least six agents around them. Now, when he's in the Oval, the agents are posted outside of the colonnade, 
outside in the hallway where my post was. You know, they're, so they're kind of surrounding them, you know, outside the room. You, you know, normally day to day, we don't they don't go inside the, the room with them. From time to time, they do. I mean, there was there's always exceptions. I mean, I actually myself, you know, under some of these exceptions, have actually opened the door and walked in and stood in the in the president with the president and the agent because of something that was going on. Um, but, but the way they portray it in movies, it's a little bit more serious. I'll be honest with you, a lot of the way they, they portray the Secret Service in the TV and movies, they portray them as more serious than what we are. And, and I don't mean we don't take the job serious, but it's like anywhere. If, if you had that much tension on you all the time, um, like they portray in TV and movies, you would melt. You know, you would, you would be exhausted at the end of the, of the day. You wouldn't last until the next day. Um, right. So it's a little it's a little bit more laid back than they portray it, but it's a serious job, and you learn how to you know deal with that stress um, in, in, in certain ways. And um, um, but um, the way they portray, you know, it's always so dr- dramatic, and it's not always dramatic. It's it's usually, you know, you hope for a real boring day, and um, the days that are like that, that's great, and some days it's not. You know. Well, in terms of training to be a Secret Service agent, would you be required, let's say, to, to watch the Zapruder film, for example? Yeah, as a matter of fact, we do. Um, it is one of the, the films you watch. And it's really funny. I'm glad you brought this up. I didn't really realize this till, you know, till last year, two years ago when I was, or a year ago when I was writing the second book, Secrets of the Secret Service. You know, they teach you about the Kennedy assassination and the Zabruder film in a certain way. You know, they they do it in a way where they want to make sure that, like, they don't have any fingerprints on it. The Secret Service tries to teach it like they don't really have any responsibility for what happened. And that's really not what the reality is. Um, but they do talk about the Zabruder film. Um, and they, and there's another, there's another piece of film that they show, and there's some still pictures. And then um, they, they actually, they do read... Some, they had a small bit, I remember them reading to us, like some of the reports from guys, like, um, you know, personal notes and stuff that they made um, afterwards and, and things that happened to some of the guys. But um, they don't spend a whole lot of time on it. Uh, and, and, you know, in hindsight, like I said, when I was writing the book, it made me a little suspicious, you know. Um, and I tried to, when I wrote Secrets of the Secret Service, my co-writer and I, Grant Schmidt, we, we tried to, leave the conspiracy theory, you know, theory stuff out. We just wanted to, you know, work on the facts that we knew. This is what they did. This is what happened. This is what somebody should have did. You know, it was neglected. But um, they do teach it, and they, and they, they actually they, they teach the uh, Reagan assassination pretty, pretty deep, deeply, too. But when I joined, some of the guys that were around when, when, when um, President Reagan, um, John Hinckley, tried to assassinate him, they were still on the job. So we got to meet these guys. So that was fascinating, too. Uh, yes, and we'll get into uh, some of the specific sure. assassination attempts uh, a little bit later. Gary Byrne with us for the full two hours. And uh, we are discussing his new book, Secrets of the Secret Service, The History and Uncertain Future of the U.S. Secret Service. Now, in crisis of character, you, I mean, to be brutal, you—I mean—you lambasted the Clintons when a when a yeah. former secret when a former Secret Service agent tells tales out of school, so to speak. Are there yeah. repercussions? So, for example, is yeah. there like a fraternity, a fraternity of former Secret Service agents, and do you risk there being is. ostracized when you write a tell-all? 
Absolutely. Um, I, 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 you do. Absolutely. And just about everything you said came true. Yeah, the Retired Agents Association came out and, you know, first they tried to say that I was, uh, that I didn't have access to what I saw. And then when that didn't stand out, because the truth is, you can go on YouTube and actually, um, there's a YouTube video of me actually working my post during the Clinton administration. George Stephanopoulos is in the video. President Clinton uh, comes into the video. Um, it, it's it's a, a documentary that was being it just happened to be filmed that the, the Clinton administration allowed to be filmed while they were there. So you know it proves that I was there and, and everything and, and you know everything the history of what happened, me being subpoenaed and forced to testify, you know uh, proves that everything I said it, uh, was true. Um, but yeah, they came out and tried to slander me and and. Um, and uh, and I and you know I started a court proceeding on them, and so when the second book came out, they were pretty much silent. <laughs> uh, but the mm-hmm. truth is that at least forty other you know I, I read and researched forty other books, roughly uh, written by other Secret Service employees, usually agents. And um, the first, you know, I'm the first Uniform Division officer that ever wrote a book like this, or these two books like this. So they didn't really know how to handle it. Um, but the truth of the matter is, you know. My feelings aren't hurt. I get, you know, they they're trying to protect the image of the Secret Service, and that's one of the re- that's one of the things I talk about in Secrets of the Secret Service. It, it, in some ways, they're more worried about protecting the reputation of the Secret Service than they seem to be in protecting the protectee. So, um, but yeah, you're right. They did come out, and and, and uh, they're, they're not happy about it. But by the same token, there's not much they can do about it. So, prior to um, you coming out. And, and talking about this and other Secret Service agents that have written, not tell-alls, but they've sort of revealed certain things about the Secret Service sure. And, sure. and so forth. Prior to that, was there and is there still this unwritten rule that Secret Service agents take their secrets to the grave? Yeah, there is to a certain extent. Here's, here's the, the other thing I've kind of discovered. Um, and, and I kind of use this as, as, as a def- part of my defense when I wrote the first book. All those you know, there's been a lot of books written by other people uh, that were never in the Secret Service. And I will tell you that um, their information is right on. It's right on target. So somebody in the Secret Service was talking, and it wasn't somebody from the Uniform Division, because you can tell by the way that the story uh, folds out when you're reading it or you're hearing somebody talk about it, you know, what the perspective was. You can tell it was from an agent's perspective. So, you know... Through the history of the Secret Service, agents have always met with people in secret. You know, somebody's writing a book. Well, I can't tell you officially, but, you know, over a free steak and some drinks, I'll, you know, I'll mm-hmm. tell you unofficially. And so what I've done was, instead of doing that, I put my face on the book, my name on the book, and, and I came out and, and told what the truth is. And, um, you know, it, that was hard to handle for some people, um, but it is what it is. You know, if you're going to do the right thing, do the right thing. I, I neglected to ask you when I mentioned the Zapruder film and you said that you had studied right. it and it is part of the training. I know yeah. you don't delve into sort of the conspiracy aspect in in, in your new book, uh, Secrets of the Secret Service, but what do you think after looking at that umpteen times? Was the fatal headshot from behind or was the shooter in front or to the side of the president? Yeah, so um, I, I kind of come down in a, in a, on a couple sides of that, to be honest with you. And I will tell you that, um, you know, I say this kind of, I mean, I have fired every firearm just about that there is, small arm that you could, you know, 
that is used in law enforcement. And I've rifles, shotguns, handguns, you name it. And I've shot about everything you can think of. Um, I will tell you, when I watched that film, that, that, that bullet that impacts him that opens up his skull, you know, if I had to guess, I would tell you it looks like it's going faster. It does look like it's a different rifle round. Uh, I believe it looked like it impacts him uh, from the front, but I don't have anything to back that up. Um, there are a couple conspiracy theories that I kind of touch on a little bit, um, and, and, and there's one that particularly I purposely left out of the book. I'll talk about it, you know, on the radio shows and stuff, but I kind of left it out of the book because I don't want to make it too confusing. But the bottom line is, is what I discovered was is that the President Kennedy was basically killed because the Secret Service was incredibly incompetent that day. There was a lot of procedures they weren't using. The ones they were using, they weren't doing correctly. And they basically left the window open that a guy could stick a rifle on it and, and take a shot. And the night before, some of those guys were out partying. And we found evidence in, 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 in documentation and in other people's books um, that they were out to 3 to 5 o'clock in the morning. And, and after learning that and, and studying some more stuff, and then we went to the Zabruder film, and you see most everybody kind of shocked or in a stupor. It, it fits right in, with the exception of the, the uh, gentleman that you see that runs from the follow-up car to uh, the back of President Kennedy's car, and right. uh, Clint Hill. And there's one other person you don't see on the film that I found through my um, um Gary, I have to interject here. Excuse me. We're going to take a break. That's all right. We'll take a quick break, come back, and we'll pick up on that. Gary Byrne, former Secret Service agent, revealing the secrets of the Secret Service right here on The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. When in doubt, blame the government. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. The owners of the system are asleep. Now we can play The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. Hey, welcome back. Great to be spending a Sunday night into Monday morning with you. Gary Byrne is with us, the author of Secrets of the Secret Service. And he was, uh, well, he was in the Secret Service during the uh, Clinton White House years, standing right outside the Oval Office. Uh, Before we get back to the JFK story, do you remember the first time you set foot in the Oval Office? What that felt like? Yes, I do. Uh, I just, uh, I'd only been there about six months, it was so early 1991, and um, I had signed up to train to work outside the Oval Office, and so I went over there one day for an hour to stand with the guy that was there, and the president at the time was President George Herbert Walker Bush, and um, so he was not in the Oval Office, so we went in, and he walked me through the whole suite, and uh, it, it was, I hate to sound corny, but it was kind of magic, I mean, it was just unbelievable, you know, I'm, I'm a kid from Ridley Park, Pennsylvania, you know, right outside of Philadelphia. And, uh, I mean, how the heck did I get there? It was, uh, it, it was 
And, you know, that feeling kind of never went away, to be honest with you. Not completely, I promise you. Uh, it was kind of magic. I uh, greatly appreciated the opportunity. All right. We were talking about uh, how, based on your research, the JFK security uh, secret service detail had dropped the ball. They were out partying the night before, well into the wee hours. And uh, you mentioned, with the exception of of one uh, Secret Service agent, and you wanted to talk about uh, him and one other. Yeah, uh, the first guy you see in this brutal film, uh, Clint Hill, he runs from the follow-up car to President Kennedy's car. He was actually Mrs. Kennedy's lead agent. What you don't see in, in in the film is two cars back is Vice President Johnson's car. And his lead agent, um, his name slipped my mind, but it'll come to me in a minute. Uh, his lead agent, um, as soon as he hears the first shot, this guy leaps up in the seat of the car, turns around. You know, it's an open car, but it has a, like a, a bar across between the two seat sections. He leaps over the bar and pushes the vice president down on the floor and his wife and lays on top of him. I mean, those are the two guys that... Um, that did the right thing. And, and when you watch that three to five seconds go by on the tape, they're all kind of stunned. They're looking around. Um, they're not really sure where the shots came from. The guy driving the car slows the car down at one point almost to a stop again. And he actually, you see him in the film, he hits the brakes twice. And he's not sure what to do because he's not the normal driver. He wasn't trained properly. The uh, the agent in the, the it, sitting next to him doesn't give him any commands for like three to four seconds. So uh, you know it wasn't just incompetence and and and, and, and you know and partying. It was bad training at the time. It was ego. You know, with the Secret Service even today, we you know, and I'm guilty of this myself. You know, um, you get in there and, and you start kind of believing your own press and and um, and you know the truth is you have to train, you have to practice, and you have to. You really have to play the what if game. What if this happens? I do this. What if that happens? And do do that? Do I need to do this? And these guys just, you know, they they um, they were making mistakes. The, the advance was was poorly done, and uh, and they got caught that day. And and you know, again, set aside the conspiracy theories. They left the window open big enough for somebody to stick a rifle out of. They set up a, a motorcade route that brought them right into an area of perfect ambush and, uh, and the driver slowed down for him. So, and, and, and it's not, you know, it's just incompetence and bad training is what it, it boils down to. Uh, true or false secret service agents take an oath to take a bullet for the president. Is that true or false? No, it's not actually an oath. So this came up when I, when I uh, wrote the first book, um, you know, everybody was, well, you took an oath. The oath that you take is to the Constitution of the United States and to the Office of the Presidency. Now, I will tell you that in your training, many times, there's two things, and this kind of goes back to one of the questions you we were talking about earlier, was the two things they keep kind of pounding into you is we're hiring you to stand up and take a bullet, whether you're in the uniform division or an agent. You know, your job isn't to turn around. You know, if the president's attacked, your job may be to turn around and pull your gun out and fight, but more than likely it's for the agents right around the president is to grab the president and move him. And move, move, move is the order of the day. Don't stop moving until you have to walk in, into a hardened facility. And um, and the other thing that I pounds into you is, you know, you keep what happens to yourself. 
um, that you, you you shouldn't talk about these things. And, and I know it sounds a little ridiculous for me to be saying this now, and but I will tell you this: I absolutely believe it 100. percent I still believe it to a certain extent, which I know sounds a little crazy because I wrote these books. But my situation, and, and you know, I am rationalizing this a little bit. I, I get it, but my situation was a little bit different. You know, because of President Clinton's behavior, I got subpoenaed six times. It, it, you know, um, it kind of derailed my life. I wanted the truth out and to tell get the truth out from my perspective and my coworkers' perspective. This is the only way to do it. So, but yeah, they do pound that into you. Um, and they have the scenarios, you know, for instance, you saw in, um, in, one, in the uh, Reagan video um, where the guy literally stands up on his toes and sticks his arms out. And they, they, they are trained that way. Um, exactly. After you, you know, discovered uh, some of uh, Bill Clinton's character flaws, let's put it that way, did you still feel the calling that, that you would, if necessary, take a bullet for that president? Yeah, it didn't change a thing. And just to, just to reiterate that, like, um, people would ask me, people have asked me before on radio shows, and it's probably your one of your next 10 questions, but I'll, I'll jump ahead if you don't mind, is like, what if I was still there and Mrs. Clinton had gotten elected? I would protect her with 100% of my abilities. Absolutely. That's the job. You have to disconnect. You have to have that ability to disconnect from the, the, your emotions, your politics. And you have to realize, you know, half the country, regardless of who's president, half the country wants them in there and the other half doesn't. And half the world hates them. And you stood in front of, you know, everything you believe and your classmates and put your hand on a box, you know, raise your hand and swore those and... You know, if you didn't understand, it was a risk to your life, and that's your mistake. But you do your job, you do it to the best of your ability, and you hope for the best. Absolutely. I'm a firm believer in it, and always will be. It reminds me of a, 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 it was an old joke about someone uh, going over to a friend's house. This is how old I am. It's a Nixon joke, but it was, uh, yeah. they walk into this person's den, and they see a, a portrait of, President Nixon, and he says to his, this guy's a Democrat, and he says to his friend, I didn't know you were a fan of Richard Nixon. He says, I'm not. I'm a fan of the president. So it's yeah. the office. It's the, all about the office and respect yeah, for the office. Yeah, it's true. And I will tell you, it's overwhelming. It's, um, uh, yeah, you know, nothing he, ever, nothing he ever did that I saw. And I saw, you know, there's a lot of stuff I don't talk about. Again, I wasn't trying to take down everybody that ever worked for him. And, um, and and bring up any more crap that uh, that isn't out. But but um, the job is to protect them. That's what you do. You protect them. You protect them. You protect them. And you do it to the best of your ability. You don't want to be that guy. You know, I always said uh, I didn't want to be that guy sitting in front of a Senate committee trying to explain, you know, why the president splattered all over Pennsylvania Avenue or you know got to get somebody in the stomach because I wasn't doing what I was supposed to be doing. So um, yeah, it, you definitely. Um, uh, have to have that mentality, in my opinion, in my experience. Let's talk a little bit about the history. Uh, we'll be coming up on a break, and we'll start the conversation now and then discuss it further later. Sure. But uh, Lincoln, as I, I mentioned earlier, irony of irony, signed the Secret Service into existence on the very day of his assassination. Yeah, uh, now, mind you, back then it was supposed to be, it was all about the... Uh, uh, protecting the, the 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 currency, they were it was an extension of the Treasury Department. Um, but 
what kind of security did Lincoln have at the Ford Theater? And would John Wilkes Booth have been able to get that close if Lincoln had Secret Service protection? So, yeah, so what Lincoln had that night was he had two people, a police officer and a military officer. The police officer was across the street in the bar. <laughs> yes. God. And um, there's just so many jokes there. But, um, and then the, the military officer was distracted. Uh, and he, what you have to understand about Lincoln's assassination was John Wilkes Booth, you know, and, and don't, don't get me wrong, I'm not cheering on Booth, but you have to, you know, lay the facts out and so you can learn from them. John Wilkes Booth set it up very well. He, he had a uh, day before, a couple days before, he had walked through the theater. He had, he had been, he was an actor, so he'd been there before. He planned it out very well. He actually manipulated the lock on the door and drilled an extra hole in the door so he could see in there to make sure the president was in there. I mean, he set this up very well. And he got the other people distracted. Um, if Lincoln had, if the two people that were supposed to be there had been there, um, it might have been a little bit different. If, if Lincoln had had, five people protecting them, it probably would have been a lot different. The modern-day Secret Service can protect um, the president from a Lincoln-type assassination. But later on in, in the uh, in, our, in your show, I'll be able to tell you a story, you know, where they kind of almost made the same mistake with President Obama. Um, so, but I, I, I'll, you know, we'll wait till later when you bring that one up. But, um, you know, it, it, it all comes down to, you know, how good you are that day. And how fatigued they are. And that's one of the things I talk about in the book is that Secret Service just works all their employees into the ground almost. So, um, but yeah, it, it is it is um, preventable. But you know everybody's got to be on their game. And and in in the case of, of Lincoln, you know I hate to sound like I'm on Booth's side, but he did his planning. And and you know under the circumstances, in the time that it was. He was a little high tech about it, you know. When you think about it, so um, fascinating to read. But but you know, and Lincoln. Um, I don't know if you saw this in the book, but 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 Lincoln actually almost got himself killed when he went out to the battlefield during the Civil War. He, um, you know, he used to wear that tall hat. Yes, he's out, he's out on the battlefield uh, during a battle, and uh, a bullet goes through the top of the hat. <laughs> and, um, Everybody around them thought somebody took a shot at him. Lincoln was just convinced that it was, uh, it was an accident. Like, you know, nobody actually shot at him. So, huh. but anyway. All right, Gary, we'll take another quick time out. We'll come back. We'll talk about Garfield, McKinley. Uh, we'll uh, we'll talk about some other attempts. Teddy Roosevelt, of course, Reagan. Uh, much more. Gary Byrne, the author of Secrets of the Secret Service, the history and uncertain future of the U.S. Secret Service. Back with more in a moment. Stay with us. From Yeti to Nessie, pyramids to pandemics, all is revealed on The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. The truth is not out there. It's right here. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett from Zoomer Radio. 
Gary Byrne stays with us for the full two hours, former Secret Service agent and uh, the author of Secrets of the Secret Service, The History and Uncertain Future of the U.S. Secret Service. We were talking about um, uh, Lincoln. I wanted to talk about uh, um, Garfield. He was a guy that was 16 years later after, uh, after Lincoln's assassination, was shot in Washington, D.C. at a train station. At, at point-blank range from behind, again, no yeah. significant security detail. Hard to imagine the president of yeah. the United States. I mean, what happened there? Yeah, so one of the things, and I'm, I'm glad you, you said it like that because it triggered something I, I wanted to talk about was one of the things through our history was is that presidents, and, and the Congress is guilty of this too, um, guilty of many things, but this is one thing that you um, – that I found is they didn't want presidents to look like kings and kings get protection and you know with these huge armies around them and they didn't want them to look like kings and a lot of the presidents have have um, quite often you know fought security you know didn't want it around them didn't like the way it made it the way it made them look Teddy Roosevelt was famous for some of his, his writings about you know when he first became president uh, you know he didn't like this Secret Service being around them and and, and uh, McKinley was the same way. And, and, um, they didn't like that. It, it bruised their egos. You know, it, it, it made them look like they weren't tough. Um, and and that was one of their fears. And a lot of times their staff didn't like, you know, didn't like the intrusion and, and that, that type of stuff. So um, it's kind of, it kind of comes down to, like, the, the old story about, you know, how many, how many people have to get killed in an intersection before you put up a stop sign, you know. Um, and then I guess, you know, the, the injuries started stacking up, and then finally, you know, the, the, they started getting serious about protection, and, and um, you know, to a certain extent. So Well, you, yeah. mentioned, you, mentioned, you mentioned McKinley and how he didn't like security, and he loved glad-handing, and, and he was right. shot, of course, in, 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 in Buffalo, New York, at the Pan American Exposition in the Music uh, Pavilion, and his, his own yeah. secretary told him on two separate occasions, something's going to happen here, don't go. And right. and he, and McKinley basically told him, no, we're going to do this. Can't, how much ability does the president have to say, no, I'm wading into that crowd or, you know, right. w- w- I'm going to get out of the limo. And how much authority does the Secret Service have over the president in that regard to overrule him? Right. It depends on the timeline you're talking about. Now, what you were just discussing, McKinley at the uh, expo, um, the, basically he had to say, so to speak, like his protectee, his protectees that day. Those guys were on the ball, and and actually at one point, one of the one of the uh, uh, police officers went out. There was a military honor guard. He brought the military honor guard in, and and without without the president's permission, had them basically post around him in a big circle, like a picket fence. And it was working very well. And then as he greeted so many people, people started moving around and getting frustrated. And and the lines kind of broke. And then this guy got in. And he got close enough to look like he was pulling out a handkerchief and he pulled out a pistol. And um, so um, nowadays it's different. There are rules and laws. And when presidents get elected nowadays, um, uh, and I've gotten, I had quite a bit of insight into this when I worked, when I was protecting President Clinton, because I had a very good relationship with a lot of the senior agents. And they, they brief these modern day presidents. I mean, they, you know, the briefing they give them to get their attention is, um, 
it's scary, <laughs> you know, because they lay it out. I mean, and um, but yeah, the modern day Secret Service agent has the ability to override the president. But here's what here's what we learned, and I, and and I got to tell you, I learned a lot more from my research about this particular thing than I did in my um, in my time there was. But when you use that card, when that agent uses that card. And um, under under uh, some circumstances, he pretty much realizes that he's going to be replaced in the next you know six months or sooner. Like when if he if he uses that card and the president doesn't like the way he used it, and I can give you a good example later on where uh, an agent does use it and it saves the president's life um, that I discovered. And um, but if you use it and you you know piss them off and um, you know they will replace you. You get reassigned. You don't get fired. That depends. At that point, like, if you're a senior agent, you're probably close to retirement already. And um, so, you know, you yes, you, in the case that you're not ready for retirement, yes, they, they, they will just reassign you. But um, most cases, guys have the retirement time, you know, that, you know they've been on long enough to retire, um, and they will, will retire. But... Um, yeah, in some cases they'll just uh, transfer them, but it, it's not—it's not as um, it doesn't happen that often. And you know, it's easy to explain. You know, most most even if it you know even if the time that you do it, the president's upset about it or his staff. When you you know later on when there's an after action discussion, and you explain to them what's going on because there's a thousand things in this guy's head right now. I mean, you know, this agent is making. Split-second decisions, one right after the other. You know, who's that person? Who's this person? Is the, do I have enough uniform division guys? Are the middle detectives working right? The, you know what I mean? Like, you name it, it is happening in his head. And, um, you know, if he errs on the side of protection, then, and you want to the flame to the wolves, then that's on you. But, you know, these, I mean, like I said, I've, I've had my issues with the management in the Secret Service, but it's not usually about the way they're doing the job. It's about the way they manage their employees. Um, and these guys are, like I said, they're making decisions, you know, a hundred seconds. And, uh, and it's all about protecting this one guy's life. And um, can the president order Secret Service to protect other people, uh, for example, uh, a cabinet secretary or yeah. uh, a family member of the vice president? Yeah. Yeah, and they actually have. Um during President Clinton's uh, time, it's probably the, the quickest story to tell you was um, they... Oh, i got to get... Uh, sorry. Some, pardon the interruption. Yeah. Pardon the interruption. Sure. I'm going to get you to tell that story on the other side. Uh, this is sure. a, a short segment. We'll come back. Gary will tell us uh, more about uh, inside the Clinton White House as a Secret Service agent. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show. Don't go away. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Where there's smoke, there's The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Gary Byrne, former Secret Service agent, is with us for the full two hours. And his latest book is Secrets of the Secret Service, The History and Uncertain Future 
of the U.S. Secret Service. And we will talk about the uncertain future in hour two. Right now, we're sort of uh, delving into a little bit of the history of the Secret Service. We talked about uh, Lincoln, the irony uh, that Lincoln signed the Secret Service into existence on the very day he was assassinated. Uh, and uh, the Secret Service uh, was not really extended to presidential protection until after McKinley's assassination in 1901. Uh, we're going to talk about some of the close calls, but we were talking about Clinton. And I had asked you, Gary, whether a president has the ability to order the Secret Service to protect other people, like cabinet secretaries or extended family members, etc. cetera. Uh, uh, yeah. And you were telling me about Clinton. Yeah, well, before I finish that story, uh, let me tell you this real quick. When I joined the Secret Service in 91, they had 12 protection details. 12. When I left in 2003, they had 28. Wow. So, wow. yeah, that gives you an idea. And I, 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 don't, I don't really know what they have now. So back to answering your, your question was, yeah, so President Clinton's president, and they do a, they do a, a terrorism attack, on anti-terrorism attack on um, some, some terror, what they think are terrorist training camps um, in Africa somewhere. And, you know, um, so after the attack, the attacks and stuff, uh, they use cruise missiles and stuff. So, of course, the, you know, the terrorists are, are, are uh, going to do a counterattack. And, and through, a, through a chain of events from two different avenues of information, uh, the Secret Service finds out that there's, um, that there's, there's a viable uh, plan, planning going on, um, to attack one of President Clinton's cabinet members in in, in Washington, so um, they they um, they brought the information to the Secret Service. The Secret Service brought it to the president. I mean, immediately, like the director walked it right over. Um, and, and the director, and this is something else that might be fascinating to your listeners. Like, no matter what's going on, the director of the Secret Service is one of those people um, that just walk can walk right into the office. And he, I mean, he'll only do that when it's necessary. All he has to do is walk into the president's secretary's office, smile at her, say hello, and like she won't even. She'll just, they'll just say, "Oh, okay, no problem, sir." You know, you need a minute with him, and then interrupt whatever he's doing. And he went right in there and uh, told the president of the threat, told him that they were ready to move and protect these people immediately. That they were already putting the motorcades together, the cars, the, the human beings. They were ready to do it. All he had to do was say, you know, pardon the pun, but pull the trigger. And they did, and they protected this guy for a year and a half. And, wow! Um, so yeah, it, it can be done very quickly, and um, and 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 on the fly, almost so to speak. And all former uh, presidents, all uh, ex presidents, uh, do they all, by law, require Secret Service protection, or can they sort of opt out and and have and hire their own private security detail? Uh, yes, to both those questions, um, it, it's uh, it's afforded to them by the the, the law, but it's also they can opt out. You actually have to sign a document um, relieving the Secret Service of the of the burden. And um, President Nixon did that. President Nixon was so ashamed of the way he left office that he paid for his own security. Now his security that he hired were former Secret Service agents. Um, but they, but you know, he, it was a private security company that an agent had started, and um, and he paid for it himself. All modern day presidents are being protected by the Secret Service, and that's one of the things I talk about in the book. Is I, I, I think it's time to change that a little bit. 
Um, I propose that they protect them for a year and then let these guys give them a stipend from, you know, to pay for their private security and then let them hire whoever they want to do their security um, because, the, you know, it's taking away so much of the Secret Service resources. Um, exactly. And just, we'll get into that as well in hour two. It seems since yeah. 9-11, really, uh, the the Secret Service has been called upon to do so many other things that are, were not necessarily intended originally, but we will get into that. I want to talk about, sure. you know, certain close calls and attempts that we never hear about. Um Attempts on on uh, Obama, you you mentioned yeah. that there was kind of a close call that almost mirror, mir- mirrored the McKinley assassination. Yeah, a little bit. So, 2014, President Obama is down in Atlanta, Georgia, at the CDC Center for Disease Control, and and he's there for a good portion of the day, and, and uh, he's going to different parts of the hospital, meeting different people. Well. The Secret Service, this is one of those examples. They're they're just so overworked. And the the agent doing the advance, um, you know, was working 20-hour days before he even did that advance. He was exhausted. Anyway, some mistakes were made. And basically what happened was, is through a folly of mistakes, they let President Obama three times in one day get on an elevator. And the guy operating the elevator would work for a private security company. The Secret Service had never interviewed him, didn't even know the company was working there. The guy was not, had not been interviewed. He wasn't given a pen, um, and he was armed. And he, 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 not only was he armed, but he had a criminal record. He had had some run-ins with the law, with violence, with a handgun. And three times he got on the elevator with President Obama, and nobody even questioned who he was. And at the end of the day, the third time as he was leaving, the only way they figured out there was something wrong is the guy pulled out his cell phone and started taking pictures of President Obama. And then he started asking questions, and when they realized he was armed, then they, they do what they, you know, unfortunately, they do what they, they kind of do best, and they do, they do right away when they get caught making a mistake is they try to cover it up. And they tried to hide it, but the story got out, and a couple agents that were very upset of what had happened um, you know, got got the story out, but um, um, you know that was a. That, I mean, if that guy had balance in his heart, he could he could have took a shot at President Obama, and I don't know how he could have done it and not killed him. I mean, from that, you know, from that distance, right. standing right next to him. So you know, that's an example of of you know the, their management style. They, you know, they they use they're using a couple. You know, let's say just for the the sake of our conversation, they're using you know. 300 agents or 500 agents on PPD, they need 800. You know, they have a thousand uniform division officers, they need 1,500. Um, and they just they use the smaller number and they work them in overtime until they're exhausted. So, when someone threatens the president, let's say on social media in a in a tweet, is it automatic that you're going to get on a, a plane? Somebody in the Secret Service is going to get on a plane and knock on that person's door. Uh, whether in you know you're in Washington and there and the tweet is tracked to San Luis Obispo, California, you're on the plane and you're knocking on that person's door. Is it matter of fact like that? Well, sort of, not quite that. But it depends on the threat, and of course, social media is tough. I mean, you know, in theory, you could threaten the president from a cave in, in Alaska, um, but in, in the scenario that you, instead of somebody jumping on the plane. The Secret Service just sends an email or picks up a phone and calls that field office, closest field office, to where they trace that person, and then they do the investigation and interview from there. But pretty much the way you said it. And 
they try to track down every threat, um, but you know, and, and they do. But it takes time, and there's lots of them. And, and you know, just just, I mean, when I was there before social media and and the internet was like it is today. I mean, I left in 2003. It was it was pretty much the way it is today. But I mean, you, you have to admit to yourself that like every year that goes by, we can just transmit stuff so much faster and so you know and and. Um, and there's so many platforms that you can, electronic platforms you can threaten the president from. Um, it's hard for them to run it down. They really are kind of meeting their match with it, but they they do they do um, work on it very very diligently, and they do try to run down every threat or lead. And I mean, you have the the power to um, investigate that individual if. You, for example, it's not just an automatic. Well, you've threatened the president; you're going to jail. If right. you investigate and you discover that this person has an alcohol problem or mental illness, do you have the right. power then to basically not exonerate, but to 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 shield that person from serious prosecution? Well, you can go either way with it. You you you, you have the you have the power to actually um, if you could if you feel that there's a viable threat. For instance, you know, you, you, somebody makes a threat, you trace it down to somebody in California, you get there, and it's a 70-year-old man in a wheelchair who's angry at the president because he cut his Social Security. You know, there's no weapons in the house. The guy is not going anywhere. Um, you don't have to hammer him. You, you know, you, you, you interview him. And if he said, you know, if you during the interview, the guy says, I am so embarrassed. I, I, you know, I had a couple beers that day. I was angry. You know, I'm in a wheelchair. Uh, um, I feel like I'm at the end of my rope. I'm embarrassed I did it. I'm sorry. I would never, you know, I don't like the guy, but I would never do that. To I couldn't do it, and I would never want to do that. You know, yes, the Secret Service has that judgment call. Uh, well, there's some humanity there. That's that's nice to know. Listen, we'll no, we'll take I, a time out, Gary. Got to sorry, Gary. Got to run. We got we'll we'll pick this up on the next hour. Gary Burns stays with us. Hour two, former Secret Service agent, and a remarkable tell all. Well, not he doesn't tell everything, but he tells an awful lot about the U.S. Secret Service. Back with more of the Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. Stay with us. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Live from Toronto, Canada, Earth, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio. Hey, thanks for inviting me into your home. Long-haul truck, RV, camper, taxi, your parents' well-appointed rec room with the shag carpeting, the ping-pong table, and the wood-burning stove. Your loft, that greasy spoon just off the interstate, and your cabin in the woods. And hello to everyone listening in on our flagship station, Zoomer Radio here in Toronto. 740 kilohertz on the amplitude modulation band and 96.7 on the frequency modulation band. Hiya to all of those checking us out on one of our affiliates across North America. How do, how do to those listening via the Zoomer Radio and Conspiracy Show apps. Uh, Those of you watching the live stream on our YouTube channel, Strange Planet. Those of you in the live stream chat room. However and wherever you're listening, I bid thee the warmest of welcomes and I thank you for your fine company. Former U.S. Secret Service agent Gary Byrne is here. His new book is titled Secrets of the Secret Service, 
the history and uncertain future of the U.S. Secret Service. Uh, before we get Gary back in here, just a reminder, we are streaming live on YouTube tonight. Go to my YouTube channel, Strange Planet, and don't forget to hit the red, hit that red sub button. Uh, next week on the program, author-researcher John Potash will be here for the full two hours. Uh, several years ago, John wrote uh, a very controversial book called Drugs as Weapons Against Us, and that has now been turned into a documentary film. He'll be here to tell us all about it. That's next week on The Conspiracy Show. Gary Byrne is a former Secret Service agent who helped protect the Clinton White House in the 1990s. He is the author of Crisis of Character and his latest Secrets of the Secret Service, uh, the, the History and Uncertain Future of the U.S. Secret Service. Uh, before the, uh, the top of the hour, oh, let me remind uh, listeners, we're going to open the phone lines as well. If you'd like to uh, to weigh in with a question or comment about the history of the Secret Service or what's happening now, where did it go wrong? We've had a number of instances, of course, where the Secret Service has been uh, disgraced. You may, re you may recall that Bitcoin heist involving a Secret Service uh, member. Then back in 2012, we had uh, the um, Secret Service, I believe it was in Colombia, uh, they were there protecting the president, and uh, there was kind of an all-night uh, drunken party involving prostitutes and so forth. Uh, there have been a number of security breaches at the White House. We'll get into that as well. If you'd like to weigh in with a question or comment, phone lines now open at 416-360-0740. That's in the greater Toronto area, 416 360 0740 toll free from just about anywhere 1-866-740-4740 1-866-740-4740 Gary we were talking uh let's see where did we leave off now before the break we were um we were talking about hmm I've lost that trail sorry uh we were talking about um Oh, I'm sorry. I'm That's okay. Too. No, not to worry. That's all right. Uh, let's let's talk about uh, some um, some recent security uh, breaches at the White House. What's sure. you know what's happening? Uh, how does something like that happen? How does uh, well, for example, a recent uh, incident at the Trump White House? Walk us through. What do you think is going wrong here? Well. Again, it goes. It comes down to the Secret Service's management style. They're they're trying to do, you know, if they need a thousand people, they're trying to do it with seven hundred, and they're they're exhausting these guys. And I can't overstate that enough. I hate to sound like a, uh, but that's where you have to start. You have to start with your manpower. And just to, just to give you a, a quick example, the uh, the average uniform division officer at the White House makes, depending on how long he's been on the job, let's say he makes between seventy and ninety thousand dollars a year. Some of those guys in 2017 made $235,000 a year. They made more than the Secretary of Homeland Security because they're working so much overtime. Um, so, but to get back to the, you know, what causes the fatigue, they get distracted, um, they're tired, um, and they're, they're stretched manpower-wise. And where they might, have, might need 25 agents to hold down and officers to hold down a perimeter or, or 50, they're using... You know, uh, they're using 35 instead of using 50 because they're, they're stressed. People make mistakes. 
Um, and the truth of the matter is, is that they, they also have a very young workforce. Um, their turnover rate is is incredible um, in the last ten years. So those are all factors that, that people need to look at. Um, there was a recent. Uh, there was a pair of Secret Service agents that were assigned to protect Trump, and they've opened up about the uh, sort of the anxieties of their job and. There were, a, you know, a pair of incredible assassination threats that they stopped in Manila. Uh, how, um, how often are there attempts that we don't hear about? Quite often, actually. Um, the do you want to talk about the the uh, attempt on President Clinton when he was in office in Manila? Do you, you know about that one? No, I don't. I, I was just going to, yeah. I was, I mentioned the one about Trump, but uh, no, tell me about Clinton's yeah. assassination attempt. Yeah, let's start with this one because it also kind of loops in when we were talking about earlier about an, an agent overriding the president or vice versa. This, this is, this happened there too. So they're in, in Manila and President Clinton, um, you know, he has a public schedule, but then while he was in Manila, there was a, um, there, he was doing a private meeting with, with a, a leader from another country and it was off the record. And so when they're leaving the one event that they're at to go to the next event, they're going to they're going to stop in between for this kind of clandestine meeting. And it's done very often. There's nothing sinister about it. It's just that somebody wants some advice. And, you know, so anyway, um, at the last minute, the the um, agent uh, in charge of the president's detail, who was actually in charge of PPD at the time, his name is Lou Marletti. This is all public knowledge. Uh, Lou was a good guy, and uh, he's in charge of the president's detail. And he tells the president at the last minute, we're changing the route. It, it's going to take us 15 more minutes to get there, and we're going to be a little bit late to your, to your meeting in between, but we have to change the route. And President Clinton was upset about it, and he really went off on, on Lou. And, um, but Lou stuck to his guns. And the information he got came from the U.S. Army was, was, was helping the Secret Service with, with doing some surveillance. And the U.S. Army said that they believed they had a viable threat on, on a bridge and um, that there was, could be possible explosives on a bridge. So they took the, the uh, secondary route. And the president made his meeting and everything. When they, when they went to the bridge and they did an investigation, they found a, a bomb with more than 25 pounds of explosives. It would have completely destroyed the entire motorcade. It was a real threat. And Lou Marletti saved President Clinton's life, absolutely. And um, and that's one of those times where he overrode the president's wishes, and he because he believed in it. You know, Lou Marletti had been, you know, in in the army during Vietnam. He had actually been in the uh, special forces medic. Like he believed, you know, he was he was emotionally connected to the army and believed these guys, and uh, it saved the president's life. And he took a, you know he took a beating over it at the, at the time, but as soon as the story got out, of course, he kind of became a hero. So, and. Um how many do we know how many attempts have been uh foiled during the trump presidency uh there's there's two that i know of um but to be honest i'm not sure that they're public um but if you know of an attempt tell me about it and i'm sure i know like i know most of them but uh there's two i know i'm not sure if they're public or not well there was the one also in the philippines during the asian 50 summit that was in november 2017. right similar situation um, and, and, and they, um, actually a very similar situation and, um, and, and it was detected and it was thwarted. 
Um, there was another one that we talked about in the, in the book in Secrets of the Secret Service that um, right after President George Herbert Walker Bush left office, um, he was over in the Middle East, and they stepped over a stone wall to that was absolutely the other scene was trying to kill him and Mrs. Bush. And uh, it was a viable threat, but they, they found it, they detected it, and they, and they stopped it. And, um, and it, it gets really complicated when you're in another country because then they're responsible for, like, responding to it. And sometimes some of these other countries, they may, they, respond, they may respond with a bulldozer when they could have responded with a shovel or, or even vice versa, you know? So it's very tough to Secret Service, um, you know, not an easy job, um, especially if, if those guys that are making those decisions, you know, that are on the ground with the protected, you know, because the life, I mean, they're protecting the president, but they're involved in it, too. You know, if, if, for instance, if Lou Marletti had relented and, and, and buckled to President Clinton's pressure and stayed on that route, they'd all, they'd, they probably all would have been killed. I mean, 25 pounds of explosives on a bridge is enormous. So, anyway. Right, right. The um, the groundwork, you know, let's say a president is coming and he's going to be staying uh, in a hotel. Let's say in, in Toronto. They're coming to yeah. Toronto for a, a, a G20 or, or a G7, and they're going to stay at the, let's say they're staying at the Fairmont York Hotel. How yeah. much in advance does the Secret Service come to vet hotel employees uh, to you know, to 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 scour the hotel, et cetera, et cetera. How I mean, how much? Walk me through how much groundwork is involved here in advance. Well, yeah. So the the minimum, the minimum is about three weeks, preferably a month or more. Um, they could do a lot of the like. They could do a lot of the research that they need to do. Somebody can do it really from Washington D.C. from a laptop. You know, you get a list of the names of the employees. You start running them. You, you know, of course. You, you, you go to Canadian uh, law enforcement intelligence, they're going to give you all the help that they can. Um, and and they're actually working together. When that Secret Service agent gets into, into Canada, he's immediately met with a counterpart from, from Canadian law enforcement and or intelligence, or both, and probably somebody from Canadian military, and they all work together. You know, the agent will say this, you know, the, they, in most cases, they know what they need. I mean, in some cases, these guys work together so often. And actually, your um, your example of Canada is a perfect one. Um, they go there so often that, you know, these guys are probably friends already. You know, they know each other. And they're passing each other the information before they, you know, the, the guy even lands on the ground. And um, and then you have to, you know, you have to get bodies. You have to get law enforcement bodies from the Canadian uh, police department. And, um and you have to get cooperation from the hotel. And, of course, everybody's more than willing to cooperate with you. And um, it's, it's many long hours. It's a lot of meetings. And then, they, you know, you, you give everybody kind of their marching orders to a certain degree, and everybody carries it out. And if they need – if they run into roadblocks and they contact the Secret Service back or, or in this case, like the Canadian uh, supervisor for the military law enforcement, and they get what they need – and because uh, nobody wants nobody wants everything to go off without a hitch, and then they want the super service to get the hell out as fast as they can. So, right. I mean, um, for a hotel, it must be that must be just hell for a hotel to have to contend with that yeah. because you're commandeering elevators. You yeah. do you vet every single employee of the hotel? Yeah, they do. And just to give you an example, I've been involved in it in this way. I, I've 
known booty, uh, you know, in events like this that have been in hotels, and the route to move the president goes through the kitchen. And, and more than once, I've been the like I've been the UD officer because I worked outside the Oval Office. All the senior agents knew me very well. So more than once, I've been asked to go into the kitchen and stand there right on the route where the president's going to pass by. And you know, about five minutes before he gets there, I walk into the kitchen, and, and there'd be an agent at each end, and I'd be in the middle. And um, you know, just before they would move in, like if somebody was. If there was a chef standing next to a table with a bunch of knives butchering meat, I'd say, listen, when I tell you, put the meat cleaver down and just step away for a minute. And they're like, oh, okay, you know. And uh, mm-hmm. and they do. You know, you just everybody just kind of stops and pauses for a second, lets the protectee walk through. More than, more than likely, the protectee is going to say hi and thank you and smile at them and then keep on going. And then once he gets to the other side of the room or out of the room, they go back to butchering their meat and cooking and doing whatever they're doing. I don't know, uh, Gary, I would think ever since June of 68 in the Ambassador Hotel, taking the president through the kitchen, bad idea. Yeah, well, you, you got a good, you got a valid point. The, the problem wasn't the route they took, they just didn't have it secured. But that's a good example of, of what I'm talking about. You know, they, they, their, their, their ideal of taking them to the kitchen was great to avoid the crowd. The problem was it wasn't secure. They didn't have real protection. I mean, I love Rosie Greer, but, um, you know, he was a good football player and, and probably a very good minister, but, you know, they just didn't have enough security. They weren't doing real security, you know. So. Well, um, in 68, presidential candidates weren't afforded Secret Service protection. Are they today? Yes. Yes, they are. And it's kind of insane. You know, again, we you know we improve things by by disasters. You know, and um, so after uh, RFK gets killed, uh, they pass a law. They start doing protection for the word they use is viable candidate. So who's the decide who's viable? Who's a viable candidate? So this is this this election coming up in 2020 is going to be a very very tough election for the Secret Service because at some point. There could be as many as 15 viable candidates um, on the, just on the Democratic side. So you can imagine the Secret Service will be stretched way beyond their limits. I mean, they'll be barring agents from the DEA, from um, from the ATF, from the U.S. Marshal Service um, to, to to man all these all these protectees. Um, yeah, it gets very cumbersome. Um, but it, that's the terminology they use. And, and the way who decides it's a viable candidate, it's the Secret Service a little bit. And then there's a group of about six. There's like three people from senior government agencies, like senior people from government agencies, and then three people in the Washington, D.C. area that, that um, they're not necessarily government employees. And they kind of sift through the information and they suggest to the Secret Service the president. But these guys are really viable candidates. Um, and in some cases, the president can say, well, you know, you're not providing a protection to this certain person, but I know from the Secret Service that this is a viable threat against them, so we're going to protect them too. And the Secret Service never says no. Um, and, and that's good and that's bad. Right. That therein lies the problem. Right. Yeah. <laughs> they never they, they don't say no. We'll 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 come back to that. Let me uh, grab a call here. Melanie has been waiting patiently and she's checking in from Toronto. 
Good evening, good morning, Melanie. Welcome to The Conspiracy Show. Thank you, and a Happy New Year to everybody. I was wondering, what do you think of the scenario? You're protecting the President uh, of the United States, but you're also in the same room with another foreign, let's say, President or Prime Minister, leader of a country, and he has his detail to protect him, and they're armed. How do you know that one of those... uh, men or women would not be a threat to your president because all these other people are also armed protecting suppose let's say Putin or or Jiang Xiaoping what how do you how do you determine whether they do you vet their people out also and they vet your people out how is that done and also the second question very quickly what do you feel should be done in North America with the bad press policing has gotten you knowing the system how would you correct that if you were in charge Excellent okay. questions, Melanie. Let's tackle that yeah. first one first. How the the the, the uh, foreign leaders' security detail? How do you yeah. know to trust them? Great question. Um, I, I, I tell you what, I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna throw a bone to a friend of mine. I hope your listeners still listening. Um, write this name down, Dan Emmett. His name is Dan Emmett. He's a former Secret Service agent that wrote a book, and he tells you a terrifying story in his book about that exact thing. And basically what you do is, let's say the country is Israel, not an issue. We're very, we work together with them all the time. Let's say the company, is, let's say the country is one of the African countries that we're at odds with. And the security, um, you know, we have questions about their security. The Secret Service, basically what they do is, is they double up with the agents. And the presidents are... The presence we protest, because I've seen this happen with Clinton, where, you know, he'll be in the Oval Office and all of a sudden he'll look up and two or three agents will walk in because they have some concerns about something that's in the office. Um, and they'll double up and they will, you know, protect them. And if they, if they think it's necessary, um, they will uh, ask the security from the other uh, country to, um, to, you know, back up a little bit. And give them a little bit, give the protectees a little bit of room. I've, I've been in the room when it's happened. I've been outside the Oval Office when similar things are happening and happened. And uh, but this guy I used to work with, Dan Emmett, wrote a great story about that. Uh, it happened to him. So um, great question. And what was the second follow-up question? It had to do with the bad press the president's getting, I guess. Well, that's just the nature of the beast. There's not much you can do about that. You know, it's just. Um, you know, there's a there's a there's a large portion of the United States that love them and put them in office, and the other half wants to um, throw shoes at them. You know, and that's the way it typically is. It's just that I mean, I do admit that that today the hostilities for the press towards President Trump seems to be a little bit different. But you know, that I watched that deteriorate over the last 25 or 30 years. So that's just where we are now. You know. But when you have, let's say, for example, um, when you have. Uh, Congresswoman Maxine Waters almost inciting, inciting people to get up in the face of uh, Trump administration officials, et cetera. And we've and we've seen that play out in in restaurants. And it was Sarah Huckabee and and so forth. Uh, Can't shouldn't the Secret Service be speaking to to Maxine Waters uh, or or even charging her with incitement? We'll we'll pick up on the other side, Gary. We're going to go into a break and I'll ask you that. Gary Byrne former Secret Service agent, and a terrific new book, Secrets of the Secret Service, The History and Uncertain Future of the U.S. Secret Service. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show right after this. The truth is not out there. It's right here. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett from Zoomer Radio. 
You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. The truth will set you free, but first, it will really tick you off. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. Gary Byrne stays with us, former Secret Service agent and the author of A Crisis of Character and his new one, Secrets of the Secret Service, a history and the the history and uncertain future of the U.S. Secret Service. Uh, Before the break, I was asking you about, well, we had a call, um, Melanie asking about bad press and what can be done about that. But further to that, I mean, it, it has ramped up considerably. Other presidents have had bad press. But when you have Congress uh, uh, members of the House of Representatives like Maxine Waters really inciting, uh, not necessarily violence, but people to get in the up in the face of Trump administration officials, can should she have been charged with incitement? Should a Secret Service agent have spoken to her? Yeah, um, it's, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sure under the circumstances um, that somebody from the Secret Service, because the, the, the U.S. Capitol Congress actually has liaison people from the Secret Service there, and I'm sure somebody went by and talked to her chief of staff about it. Um, here's the problem with somebody like Maxine Waters. You know, there's always a group of people out there that that are easy to incite, and and it doesn't mean that they're crazy. It means that they're, you know, in some cases, in my experiences, uh, which have been in over 29 years, you know, they're high strung, and if the right person triggers them, and they do, you know, basically my point is, is that kind of rhetoric from somebody like Maxine Waters is going to get somebody hurt, because if that person ends up at the White House and tries to get aggressive, they're going to get themselves arrested or worse, you know, hurt. Um, you know, it's a, it, a lot of times it's uh, it's one of the things that the Secret Service had a problem with, with inciting people to jump over the fence. And, and um, you know, years ago, when uh, people would actually jump the fence as a prank. And um, and we, we almost killed a couple people, you know, uh, tackling them and stopping them. And, and, um, but when you, when you uh, incite people to go, and if you see a cabinet member um, or, or one of the protectees and get in their face, you're you're closing the distance between them and the security. You're raising up the anxiety, and one mistake, and there could be a complete disaster. Um, I've I've seen it happen. Uh, speaking of anxiety, uh, working the rope, as they call it, that must be one of the worst assignments. Working the rope. Explain what that is. Yeah. So, so let's say the president's going to um, come outside in public and shake hands, and. Um, so we set up a rope line. Literally, if we have to, um, we'll just we, they carry um, spools of rope and they'll just stretch the rope out, get everybody behind it. A lot of we try to use like bicycle racks that we know it's going to happen early. Um, in some cases, I've actually worked the ones that were so last minute and we weren't really prepared, but we didn't even have rope and agents and sometimes other government employees. We just hold hands you know, like hands around the world and just stand in front of the protectee and uh, and push the crowd back as far as we can. And then one or two officers or agents will go into the crowd and, and search people's hands and you have them hold their hands up and look at their, you know, and try to pat them down. Um, yes, it is it is high stress, but I will tell you, if you're, if you're an adrenaline junkie like most people in the Secret Service, it's also very exciting 
and once it's over and nobody's been hurt, it's been a great experience. So, but it it, it will wind you up. I've I've done many of them, um, and um, and some of them um, are kind of funny when you know the things that go wrong. So. And what about when the president decides to get out of the limo and walk? Uh, let's say during after the during the inauguration, or after the inauguration. I mean, that's right. got to be so stressful. The inauguration walk is actually not is it's not as crazy as, as it looks to you. Um, so what we do is we set up an area. There's a, the, the last hundred yards. It's basically from from Twelfth um, um, Street up to the front of the White House. So we, that we, the whole area is secure, but when you get to that point, the Secret Service is taking steps to make sure that every avenue of approach that you could possibly do with a rifle is, is thwarted. It's either being looked at, it's, uh, the counter snipers up there, they have the window. Um, all the buildings around the, the White House area, the roofs of the buildings are long, and they ring right to the Secret Service. Um, the windows are sealed up and closed, that type of thing. Um, any anybody that everybody that gets into that area goes through a metal detector, so you know you don't have a weapon or a satchel bomb or anything like that. I mean, um, that's one of the things they do pretty good, um, and they they don't um, they don't skimp on anything uh, you know along that uh, along those lines. Like they 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 have the manpower, they they work on it. You know, months and months and months in advance, and they practice it. They actually practice it. The Secret Service practices it. Some of the groups, like Counter Sniper, will practice individually. PPD will practice, and then they get together a couple times, and they out at the training center, and they all do it together. And they make up scenarios. And after they've practiced all the reasonable scenarios, then they'll practice some real unreasonable scenarios. And uh, they they work it very hard. True or false? Secret Service carry bags of the president's blood with them. True, true. Um, secrets, it's not actually the, the, the Secret Service isn't physically carrying them. But the White House doctor is. Yes, they do. They, they have, uh, they have uh, replacement blood yep. and platelets and, and uh, plasma. Absolutely. Yep. With them in the presidential limo? Yeah, not normally in the limo. Um, usually in, in the, on the plane. Um, but there, there is a scenario where if they needed it, absolutely. Yes. And when the president is traveling, is, is the route planned out so that he, that the president is never further than X number of miles from a, from a medical facility? Yeah, it is. Um, what they do is first off, the kind of, not to, um, mess your question up, but the most important thing is, is. Uh, not most important, but one of the important things is is that Air Force One is also a hospital. So you, you've got that. And then the ho- the route that he's taking, the hospitals are picked for certain specialties. Um, you know, if you're in New York, L.A., Chicago, Philadelphia, your hospitals are experts on gunshot wounds. You know, most of them are because of just the crime in the city. Right. Um and and, uh, and let's say if a president has a special health issue, which I'm not aware of, of any with President Trump, um, and I'm not really – none of them that I have protected really had anything too serious, to be honest with you. Like, nobody had a faulty heart 
or anything like that out of the you know out of the you know the norm of you know, um, regular you know people that have heart attacks. Nobody had a serious issue. So, but they do they do pick routes. Um, they know where all the hospitals are. You know, you have your hospital for for shooting trauma. You have your hospital for um, you know head injuries. Sometimes it's the same hospital, um, and they are put on standby and they have agents standing by at the hospital in case something goes wrong. And this is some of the lessons that they've learned from the Reagan attempt at a Reagan assassination. Originally, they were going to take Reagan to the White House after he was shot. Yeah. He, he thought he was just had a, a rib injury. I mean, why the decision to go right to the White House? I, I'm guessing that's as well equipped as many hospitals? No. Well, yes and no. There is a doctor there, but 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 it's it's pure um, reactional instinct. Um, the safest place to have them is inside that fence line. You've got hundreds of uniformed division officers around them, around the complex, in the complex. You've got you know 50 agents. It's the safest place to be. We can lock it down very well. That was his natural instinct to get back to the White House. And then his, the agent's name was Jerry Parr. And President Reagan was complaining to him that he thought Jerry broke his ribs when he pushed him into the car on, and he hit his ribs on the transmission hump that goes through the car. And uh, as Jerry's talking to him, and he's searching the president, and what a lot of people don't know was President Reagan was hit with a ricochet. The 22 hit the, you know, the door in his car, in that car, opened backwards. They were called suicide doors. And the bullet hit the door, uh, hit the edge of the door and flattened out. And when, when it hit Reagan under the arm, and in his armpit. And it was flattened out, so it made like a, a knife wound, like a slice. And because his arm was done, it was basically, he was putting a tourniquet on it. So when Parr searched him, there was no blood. And then as he's talking to the president, a little speck of blood shows up on Reagan's lip. And then Parr asks him another question, and a little more blood comes out. So he immediately tells the agent to go to GW. They spin the car around, and he saved his life. I mean, you know, now when I met Jerry Parr, in 1996, seven, and and I shook his hand and I said, "It's so nice to meet you. You know, you saved the president's life." And he goes, "No, I actually pushed him in front of a bullet." But you know, I get what you're saying, and that's the way he got it. You know, right? Barr tells the story from his perspective. Technically, he pushed the president in front of the bullet, but that you know, he was closer to the car. He followed the procedure. He did the right thing. And then a nice recovery because he spotted the fact that Reagan had actually been hit in the lung, that frothy yeah. blood coming out of his mouth. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Um, cool. We're coming up on another break here, and and but I wanted to ask you, in terms of the investigative wing of the uh, Secret Service, um, I have been I've read that the. Um, they can track somebody if they write a threatening letter to the president. They can track that person based on the ink in their pen. True or false? Yeah, true. True to a certain extent. Um, here's what you're kind of getting to. The Secret Service has an enormous ink library. They have an enormous library of ink, paper, writing devices, um, just about every, anything that anybody's ever used to write, transmit, um, even, you know, letters that they've gotten. You know, like sometimes you see in the mystery movies where they cut out words out of a magazine and paste it on a piece of paper. 
to write right. Right. I've, got, even I've got to interrupt again. We'll, we'll pick up on this on the other side, Gary. I promise we won't forget the ink. Uh, the ink story awaits when we come back. Gary Byrne, former Secret Service agent, right here on The Conspiracy Show. Corporations, governments, and sometimes entire civilizations. What goes up must come down. And it lands on The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Do you want the truth? You can handle the truth. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. To get the truth, call Richard now at 416-360-0740 or toll free at 1-866-740-4740. Welcome back. Gary Byrne stays with us, a former U.S. Secret Service agent, and his new book, Secrets of the Secret Service, The History and Uncertain Future of the U.S. Secret Service. Before the break, we were talking about how the Secret Service have a way of tracking uh, people, and it's in your desk drawer. It's a pen. The ink in your pen can be used to track uh, the location of of someone who is, let's say, writing uh, threatening letters and so forth. Uh, so, before the interruption, you were uh, you were you were discussing that point, Gary. Yeah, they have a, a basically a library of of paper, inks, even writing devices, as I mentioned earlier, of uh, you know inks that are that come from chemicals, inks that are made from from berries, inks that are made from. Uh, even even uh, blood, um, they, they have a history uh, or a library of all this stuff, um, different examples of it. And, and they can, you know, if, if, a, if it's a repeat letter, if somebody, you know, writes a letter and it's a repeat letter um, and they have an example of it, then they know where the ink came from, uh, possibly what type of writing implement it is. And then they pass this information on to the agents and the investigation is going on if they come across it. They, and they can match ink, you know, in the writing device. And even in some cases where if someone wrote a letter on a pad and they know what kind of paper they're looking for, if they can find that pad, for instance, in somebody's office that has the trace marks from when the humans, name, like when you put a piece of paper on it and you write right, and you leave right. the marks, um, they've even made cases like that. So, uh, you know, they have a, a fascinating um, a history of tracking paper and ink and different writing devices and, envelopes and and the the material that the paper is made out of. Fascinating. Uh, Let's say hi to Mike from Mississauga. Welcome, Mike. Good morning. Good morning. Hi, guys. Enjoy your show, Richard. I have two questions for your guest. Uh, The first question is, there was a a movie uh, quite a few years ago called Dave, where they where the president had a uh, had a stroke and they found this guy that looked exactly like the president. Are do you does Secret Service or do you actually seek out and try to find people that actually look like the president? Is there a double? Great yeah. question. Yeah. So great question. I know there's they don't do that. It 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 was kind of against the law. And and, and what I mean by that is is you know to to um, to use somebody that looks like a president and then put him in in danger. Whether he's in the Secret Service or not, um, that that would it would be kind of hard to do. But I will tell you that once in a while, 
there was a Secret Service agent that does look like a president. When Bill Clinton was president, there was this agent, his name was Dave Carpenter, and he looked a lot like Bill Clinton from, you know, 100 yards. Um, but he was, you know, he was never used to impersonate him. Um, that's just kind of Hollywood. But I will tell you, I did, I did, I do remember the movie, and I thought it was a pretty good movie. But uh, again, the, the law kind of prohibits you, prohibits you from doing that in this country. Yeah, my second question is, um, what was the worst threat that you guys found to be actually true? Were you actually, you know, thwarted something that was, you know, that could have led to, uh, well, you know, some, the some major I damage? Earlier during President President Clinton's time. When he was in Manila, um, they found a bomb on one of the um, underneath a bridge on a roadway that he was supposed to take, and it was about 25 pounds of explosives. That was pretty serious. Um, and there were some there were some other ones. You know, there was any time there was a white a fence jumper at the White House, whether it was an actual threat or just somebody goofing around. That's always a very intense time. But the, I think the worst threat. Um, that I saw as far as danger to the protectee was probably uh, in Manila with President Clinton when uh, they they found that explosive. Mike, great questions. Thank you for that. Uh, how about the, does the president have an official food tester? Uh, not, not, not in the, the way you would think, like nobody tests the food, but they, but they purchased the food in certain ways. And the food is controlled, you know, by the White House cooks and by the the, the military. Um, over in the West Wing, there's a, a, a Navy um, restaurant. They call it in the military. It's called the Mess, and the and the Navy Mess cooks for the president over in the West Wing during the day. The food that they purchase is purchased um, by the Secret Service and by the purchaser at the White House. And they buy the food. They go in plain clothes. Um, it's usually a uniform division officer, and they go all over the Washington, D.C. area. In, in the District of Columbia, in Maryland, and Virginia, they buy meat from one grocery store. They go to another grocery store and buy chicken. Um, they buy the rice from somewhere else, and, um, and that's how they control the, the, the food safety. Um, are there times when they go to certain countries and they're concerned about where the food comes from? That's when the military guys, um, you know, get involved and, and they make sure that anything the president has been eating, that they made it, that they brought the materials to make it, and they, they know where it came from. All right, Gary, we're going to take a timeout. One final timeout. We'll come back and we'll focus in this next segment on what's going wrong with the Secret Service. Gary Byrne, my guest, the author of Secrets of the Secret Service. The History and Uncertain Future of the U.S. Secret Service. Stay with us. Don't be afraid of the dark. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. To talk to Richard, call 416-360-0740 or toll free. 1-866-740-4740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Where there's smoke, there's The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. One final segment remaining with Gary Byrne, 
Uh, and he has joined us for the entire two hours, and we are very grateful for that. That's a long haul to talk <laughs> on the radio. Gary, how are you holding up? I'm doing just fine. Thank you so much. Uh, the uh, the secret uh, secrets of the Secret Service. How do people get a, whole, a copy of this book? Uh, it's it's still in bookstores, um, Barnes and Noble, or wherever you buy books, and it's also on Amazon. Uh, Amazon.com. Um, uh, you can also get it there. It's it's in um, hardcover, softcover. It's also in digital and um, and on. Now, my uh, very basic. Um, understanding is when organizations begin to fray at the edges and buckle under pressure, often it has to do with mission creep. So is that the case with the Secret Service that uh, it's just it's um, the growing demands on the agency? Uh, Is it or is it something more to do with bureaucratic battles, tight budgeting? What's going on? It's kind of all of the above. Mission creep is actually a good way, it's a good place to start. You know, the Secret Service's original mission was uh, fighting counterfeit, and then you know, then protection, and now they also do credit card and cell phone, cellular phone fraud, and they also, because um, everybody's involved in anti-terrorism a little bit, and then there's also they do an investigation into human trafficking, and, and not that these things aren't important. But they're putting so much demand on the Secret Service. And the Secret Service is, is guilty of, of a couple things that all government agencies, especially law enforcement, are. They never say no. They don't ever want to tell a president or a cabinet member or a congressperson no, because they want their budgets to expand. Every government director of an agency wants more money, a bigger budget, more employees. They, they, it's almost like they're trying to make themselves a little emperor. And I talk about many cases in, in, in Secrets of the Secret Service. I talk about one where a former director in 2014 had to admit publicly that with a $2 billion budget, that's billion, billion um, he could not explain to Congress where the money came from, how he spent it. They didn't have an accountant or an accounting system. And, and he couldn't verify um, that they even spent all the money. Um, and, and, and so it's just one of those things where they, if you're looking for a sign that a government agency's gotten so big that it can't get out of its own way, that the modern day Secret Service is a good example. And it's one of the agencies we should try to fix first because they have one of the most important jobs. You know, protecting the president is protecting the continuity of our government. And, uh, and protecting our counterfeit is a big deal, too. Uh, you know, protecting against counterfeit. The Secret so Service. So it, um, it seems right. like. One of the biggest obstacles to the agency protecting the president is the president. Sometimes, I mean, you can you can make that argument absolutely, but um, that's what the, the the job is. And, and my take on it is, and I saw this with the people I protected. Yes, they they do have some very aggressive lifestyles. You know, George Herbert Walker Bush loved to get in his speedboat and go seventy miles an hour. And the Secret Service had such a hard time keeping up with them. They actually went to the boat builder and asked him to slow his boat down, and they said no. And then they, and then they went to him and said, okay, then build us two boats that are a little bit faster. You know, so um, the, the, the protectees are the problem at the time, or, or sometimes, but you have to adapt to their lifestyle. 
And, I mean, there's limits to it. With the, You know, th- there are points where Secret Service directors go to the presidents and say, look, this is just too risky, and we just cannot, you know, protect you under these circumstances. And they and they usually, you know, capitulate. Um, but the, the, the problem is, is the service is so expanded, and they're doing they're doing so many things, um, and they're not and they have so many problems with retention. You know, years ago, agents never left a job, um, but they, they they're leaving in droves now. I interviewed at least a hundred agents that were leaving, and uniform division officers. In the next, there's a, there's thirteen hundred uniform division officers in the Washington D.C. area. In the next three to five years, seventy five percent of them can retire, and the, you know they're 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 basically about to collapse. Um, they've got a lot of issues they have to address. Well, when I mentioned, you know, the president, the obstacle, I wasn't referring necessarily to the president deciding I want to get out of the limo and I want to I want to kiss babies. Right. More to do with the president and his administration uh, expanding the agency's mission, particularly, right. let's say, in the wake of of nine eleven and and the George W. Bush administration. You're exactly right. Um, one of the one of the biggest mistakes they ever made with the Secret Service was taking it out of the Treasury and putting it in Homeland Security. And, and don't come me wrong, I work for Homeland Security, and there's a lot of important jobs in there. But to put all those agencies under one umbrella, especially the Secret Service, in my view, in hindsight, was a big mistake. And uh, well, give me an example of things that the Secret Service is doing now. That they weren't doing pre nine eleven. Well, one of them is the um, the human trafficking, um, which again, very important job. But you know, the Secret Service doesn't really have. I mean, it's you're just adding more work for them, and not that it shouldn't be done by somebody. But there's plenty of other government agencies out there that are doing that job. And put the burden on them. The in my in, when I say in, in secrets of the secret services, the secret service should throw everything over the side except for protection of the president and counterfeit. They should get rid of the other stuff, and and they should realize what their limits are. And my fear is is you know they'll never consider this until we have another disaster. And if anybody doesn't think that it can't happen, it, it can. You know, I mean, I believe they're good at the jo- their job, but they're only as good as, you know, they were 15 minutes ago. I mean, you know, mistakes happen. You know, I talked about the fatigue and, and the exhaustion of the employees. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it, it's just it, 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 these things have to be addressed. And unfortunately, we usually wait until they're a disaster before we address them. How many, how many people... Um is the Secret Service directly protecting I mean, uh, yeah, in, the, not, in the White House? I'm not House. really sure. Yeah, I'm not really sure. It's it's classified, but I will tell you, like an, an honest guess would be, you know, you've got um, President Carter, easily a hundred people. A hundred people. Yeah, I would say word. that's an honest. I said I would say that's an honest ballpark. And that's just the PPD, right? Well, no, that's the Secret Service as a whole. The PPD is, just protects the sitting president, so to speak. So PPD is protecting President Trump right now. And they, they were like, his, you brought up a, uh, actually a good example. 
five or six years ago, it was suggested that PPD expand, uh, the Secret Service expand PPD by a minimum of 200 agents. And they tried to do it, but they, but they, the agents are so burnt out that they, they can't replace them fast enough. You know, they're leaving and resigning and, and going to other jobs. And, um, and it's hard to keep those numbers up because, again, you know, they're caught in this cycle of, of they work them into the ground, they tell them what they want to hear, they get them on the job, then they work them into the ground, and then they leave. And, you know, back in my day, not many people left, you know, and, but times have changed and there's a lot of jobs out there and, and people don't, you know, particularly like to be treated like that uh, anymore. So, Gary, we're almost set of time. Let me ask you a couple of quick questions. Absolutely. Is alcoholism is alcoholism a problem within the within the agency? It it is a little bit. It, it's not so much alcoholism. It's bad management. It, it's you know, it, it's okay for your employees to vent and go have a good time, but they you know they shouldn't be doing it eight hours before there's a function. The Secret Service's main problem is bad management and supervision. Um, that that. And that's when these problems with alcohol come up. That's the way I experienced it, and that's the way I see it today. Gary, thank you so much for hanging out for two hours again. Secrets of the Secret Service, the history and uncertain future of the U.S. Secret Service, available at all good bookstores, Amazon, of course. Gary, thank you again. Great talking to you. My pleasure. Have a great night. You too. Gary Byrne. All right, back next week with a brand-new program, John Potish. Drugs as Weapons Against Us, the documentary. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. What I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. Good night. Good night.